0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Nicola Petit, author of Big Tech and the Digital Economy, The Monopoly Scenario, published in October by Oxford University Press. People may love their products and services, but among politicians, activists, and commentators, the big technology companies are fast developing a reputation as the robber barons of the 21st century. Their critics claim that Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Sundar Pichai, Satya Nadella, and Tim Cook are simply reincarnations of Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Mellon, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and John D. Rockefeller. In their minds, these are monopolist price-setters with tight control over new entry to their markets. Not so simple, claims Professor Petit in his new book, The picture of big tech firms as monopolists is intuitively attractive but analytically wrong, he says. A better picture is one of big tech firms as molygopolists, that is firms that coexist as monopolists and oligopolists. Nicolas Petit is the newly appointed joint chair in competition law at the European University Institute and the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies in Florence. Educated in law in Paris and Leuven, He was previously a professor at the University of Liège, a part-time judge with the Belgian Competition Authority, a research professor at the University of South Australia in Adelaide, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Nicola, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tim. Let's start by narrowing down the subjects of your book, and that's the group of the six that you call Magnaf. So we're talking about Microsoft, Apple, Google, Netflix, Amazon, and Facebook between them with a market capitalization of more than $7 trillion. Now, central to your claim that these companies are not pure monopolies is the concept of indirect entry. Can you talk us through this concept and what it is that creates this mixture that you see of monopoly and oligopoly?
2: Sure. So the idea behind indirect entry is that compared with ordinary markets in which firms tend to enter and compete by imitation, replication, and substitution of products. Um, In digital markets, firms tend to compete by differentiation, recombination, or by offering complements that move users, customers, and consumers away from the previous products and and transfer value to entirely new markets. and so what you see typically that, um, you see that, um, there's shifts in the types of products that you're, uh, that are entering into markets and that are competing in, in, into markets. And so, you know, you can take social networks as, as a good example. Um, so Facebook attacked MySpace with a much more curated network. Of users, addressing its product to to college students, and then um, Instagram, which was then acquired by Facebook, um, attacked the social network space with architectural innovation by adding sophisticated photo capabilities, and and then TikTok came in, but rather than reproducing what Facebook was doing, it basically complemented Instagram by adding music, uh, dance, dancing, and and lip sync functionality. So. So rather than uh, ha- seeing this sort of duplication of existing products and, you know, working on price and costs to create competitive advantage, these firms try to exploit the modularity of digital hardware and software to, to really recreate new value propositions that, you know, business people would say resegment the markets.
1: Hmm so where given what you've described where does the even the monopoly <coughs> uh, concept come into play
2: so um it's 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 easy to to see monopoly if you take a photograph picture of you know the existing firm that has the dominant design so you would say facebook is probably a dominant company if you think about Its position in social networks because it has a very large user base and and uh, it sells a lot of advertisement on the other side. So, if you were just to consider that the relevant markets on which you have to measure whether a firm is a monopoly or not is is uh, the standard social network, you'd say Facebook um, is probably a monopolist. But what I say in the book is. It's not enough to just look at that. Um, there's a lot of activity, anxiety, effort, and investment that, that occurs behind uh, the picture of a monopoly market share. And this activity is completely inconsistent with the standard definition of a monopoly, which is mm-hmm. a firm that is lazy, a firm that is inert, a firm that sits back on its laurels.
1: Yeah, and in, so if in, you I, I think a lot. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, so if you if you want want me to add to that, and so I think that's a sort of dominant concept in the book, which is that what's what keeps these nominal monopolies active, running, uh, restless, uh, sleepless nights is this pressure that it's is hard to observe you know with our eyes but this pressure that comes from the threats of indirect entry that you know some somewhere someone's gonna you know come up with a sort of new recombination of the products and 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 makes a monopoly stumble and so um you know google ceo um eric Schmidt one day you know wrote a line in which he said some someone somewhere in a garage is gunning for us. And but you know, and some people said, you know, this is this is, you know, Google CEO and we can't really trust what he says. But people as august and knowledgeable and influential as Joseph Chumpeter in 1942 wrote about that. They wrote about this idea of Compe- competition without competitors, and and so the book is really trying to dig deeper into this very profound idea, and, and 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 see some potential to actually revisit the the old Schumpeterian wisdom in today's world. You know, maybe Schumpeter was wrong for sixty years, uh, but maybe the the magnaf, uh, today prove him right.
1: Yes, and you have you have that whole chapter of the book where you go through the filings um, by by the, the various companies where they describe their concerns about competition, uh, and, and it is very striking. And you also you know you point out the differentiation that certain companies see a lot more competition than others could could you talk us through your thinking there right sure so uh, one of the
2: um, motivations for the book that you know I kept hearing all the time around me when I started to think about that um, you know people talking of monopoly and monopoly and monopoly and you know standard and standard consequence and implication if you start to talk about monopolies to is to think about regulation is to think about antitrust enforcement Ends, fines, and remedies, and and so on. And I was I was I was really puzzled by by that um, because um, you know one things one of the things I do almost every day is I go to to the tech press, uh, you know websites like uh, Wired and TechCrunch. I listen to podcasts like Tech uh, TechMemeWriter, and 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 on my daily. Ingestion of uh, of tech news, um, I'm often taken aback by the sheer amount of business activity, uh, intensive innovation, and entrepreneurialism, and and so the the picture of monopoly that I was you know starting to hear in my own epistemic community was totally inconsistent with. All the the sort of news cycle that I was um, exposing myself to on a daily basis, and mm. and so that was really the, the motivation behind the book. I was I was taken aback by by this discrepancy between these two sorts, sorts of echo chambers, which didn't, did not seem to talk to each other. So mm. then I started to think harder about um, whether there was uh, really an eco chamber in in my community, and. That you know could talk about monopoly without being any, without facing any contestation, and uh, I, I, I decided to I decided to go uh, deeper into the idea that maybe in my field we're constrained by analytical tools and methods which prevent us to see a sheer amount of economic activity inconsistent with monopoly. And so the point was, maybe the method that we use blinds us to, to things which are incompatible with monopoly behavior. And so I, as soon as I started to frame the issue this way, um, I made myself you know, more aware and, and open to other types of experts uh, intelligence that talks about these firms and that looks at other metrics of competitive behavior. So I went to the firms' um, reports to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which are typically not the types of documents that we use in in my field. But also, mm-hmm. I also consulted a lot of reports, um, industry analysis, and competitor reports, um, competitive identity um, studies. Produced by market intelligence firms, business data vendors, and financial uh, investment institutions, and they do they do a lot of analysis of competition and and that stuff we never really use in my field. And and when I started to tap into these resources, I I, I witnessed a completely different picture. Of you know comp for some of them, monopoly for others, but um mm. but a very a much more nuanced and complex uh, set of descriptions.
1: yeah, w- one thing I found really intriguing was uh, and I forget which company it was, and there may have been more than one of them, but you you mentioned companies that felt competition from uh, uh, units they actually owned. so um, it, particularly the messaging services. Is that something that you would have anticipated before you did the research?
2: No, absolutely not. So you know we tend to think of the firm as a black box, really, and and firms are hierarchies, and there's no space for much competition. It's you know the firm is so it's it's its, its own centralized. Uh, a set of um, resources and uh, um, everything seems is assumed to work on the same clock with, with sort of full coordination within the firm. So you'd not expect to see much space for competition inside the firm. And an interesting finding, as you as you rightly observed, is that uh, various of these MAGNAF firms tend to practice competition inside their own organization, believing that competition is indeed one process that allows to produce efficient results, efficient innovation, efficient experimentation. So messaging is is one of them. So at Facebook, you have the Facebook Messenger, but you also have the WhatsApp product that they acquired. And to some extent, these two sets of applications compete against each other for attention and they compete against each other for innovation. If you take if you take Google, Google has Google Maps and Waze. And you know, some people might say, well, but this is monopoly because they both ways, but they didn't but they didn't discontinue ways. They kept it alive and they, they invest in the business. And so you have these two units within Google that compete. And this is a very interesting thing because if you believe in competition as a good process to generate outcomes which are in the interest of consumers and in the interest of society in general, you should also credit competition within companies as a mechanism that will provide, you know, good outcomes to the company and, you know, probably to users and 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 maybe to society.
1: Is that a concept that you think is already um, embedded within? Competition authorities and with uh, within competition e- economics, or is that something that really is new to this uh, industrial sector?
2: Um, so we we know that um, firms from the non digital sector, if anything, if any such thing exists, um, have practiced that uh, type of strategy in the past, but I think uh, what you see with digital firms is that they might be more inclined to do that than, uh, than firms from other sectors. In your question, there's two questions Really, there's, you know, is I, if, if this, uh, if this uh, a typical feature of the Magnav companies to practice that's intra-firm competition? I think the answer is to some extent. Um, it's it's fairly it's fairly fascinating to see that, and I don't think this happens um, with the same intensity and frequency with uh, with other firms. But I would need to investigate that more. Uh, the second sub question in your question is whether in the policy world and in the world of people who think about consumption and try to promote consumption, whether that is taken into account. And my answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, when you try to assess whether Google is a competitive firm, people would not really look into the firm to see whether there is competition inside it. Um, we would take Google's market share as a as a, as a proxy, entry barriers um, and other obstacles to competition, and proceed from that. Um, mm-hmm. in, in fact, actually, it might um, it it might actually the, the fact that the firm has various business units working in the same space might actually reinforce the finding of monopoly, right? Mm. So people would say, okay, Google owns all the navigation services. And that would be the end of it uh, without trying to understand whether these navigation services compete against each other or whether they are coordinated. So I think we need to really look into that.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, I I mean, underlying this is is much of this antagonism towards the tech giants um, really about issues of privacy or the publication of fake news. I mean, for example, on the left, um, Facebook is is seen as the as the bogeyman, and on the on the right, although it's not part of MagnaF, on the right, uh, Twitter is seen as as the bogeyman. Uh, and you you say um, you say in the book. Looking at these predicaments through monopoly lenses is like using Facebook to get your news. It seems to do the job, but it might well be fake. Do you think that's a mistake policymakers are also making on, on, on both sides of the Atlantic? Uh,
2: yes. Yeah. Uh, so the the short answer is yes. The long answer is um makers do not policymakers are are specialized um, and so you have uh, antitrust policy you have tax policy you have consumer protection policy this is the way public policy has been organized in, in Western societies in in past decades and um, the, 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 the the fact of the matter is that even though there is um, sort of siloed specialization of public policymakers in our societies, they, they they don't operate in a vacuum. So, um, the the debates that take place outside of their own set of uh, specialist uh, remits uh, have a, have a strong impact. And so, part of the part of the uh, anxiety and concern towards uh, big tech monopolies is fueled and nurtured by a lot of external problems that we, that that are tangential, but that are importantly um, related to these platforms, such as, as you said, privacy, fake news, hate speech, tax Mm -hmm. evasion, and so on and so forth. And so to some extent, this works as a virtuous circle for, you know, the antitrust police and the regulation establishment to, to move forward because, you know, there's, there is indeed um, a lot of demand to do something. And, and so I think that reinforces the appetite, the demands, and the supply of new regulatory and antitrust policies. The problem being that um, uh, if there is force to the movement, we we should not confuse everything. And so one one thing that we've we've observed um, is that there's an increasing amount of calls for b- breakups. Um, and so you know this idea that you should you should break up Google or you should. Break up Facebook in in various units. So you should have uh, Google, Fugle, Moogle, and Zoogle, for instance, <laughs> competing for competing for the supply of, of search services. Um, or you would like to break out Facebook from Instagram, and you know have these two units separately sell advertisements uh, to to suppliers. Okay. Mm. So if you think this way, uh, if you think there's a monopoly problem and you need to to be fast and hard and you need to break up these companies, what you're going to do is you're going to basically inject rivalry in in these markets. And you are actually going to, you're not going to remove the problem that you had in the first place, the problem of privacy or the problem of targeted advertisements or surveillance capitalism. You are going to strengthen that because, you know, what's going to happen if you have, you know, more competition in the targeted advertisement market, the prices of advertisements of ads is going to fall and suppliers will buy more. Mm. So you know the solution to the solution to more privacy, less targeted ads might not be more competition or mm. might not be more rivalry. And you know people fail to understand that because they are obsessed with the bigness of these companies, but I think the obsession with bigness should not lead us to an obsession with breaking them up.
1: Do do you think, I mean, it's the the old cliche about uh, to somebody with a hammer, uh, uh, every problem, you know, the hammer and the nail um, uh, metaphor. You you talked about the breakup of Google into all these different uh, zoogles and doogles. Do you think that the people on the American side tend to look at these things through the the, the lens of of the mini And the Europeans tend to see these things through the lens of um, network industry. So the idea that you, you you want to break up the railways into the infrastructure and the operator, the similar thing with the energy companies. Um, is there a different culture in that respect between the two sides?
2: Yes, yes, yes. So there's, there's certainly a, a difference in, in culture. So I think... So America has um, probably a more polarized um, understanding of public policy in the sense that, um, on the one hand, they have this tradition of big antitrust cases with big remedies like breakups. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they also have a very established tradition of laissez-faire and free market policies uh, and these two these two forces neutralize each other uh, very often. So they have the what I want to say here is they have there is in the history of the United States a tradition of extremely severe intervention in the markets, counterbalanced by other periods of extremely severe periods of less severe economics. and the the big question for any observer of what's gonna happen in the United States is, Are we going to fall in one or the other in the future? Hmm. Europe, by contrast, has a more centrist approach in which there is a belief that government can improve market outcomes. And there is especially a belief that this requires a sort of tailored approach which consists in trying to optimize the working of markets by some benevolent intervention which which often looks really like um, like you know Lego Lego building. So you know tinkering with markets. So that's why in Europe we don't speak so much about breakups, but we we speak about inventing inventing remedies like data portability, uh, sharing the learning of algorithms. We speak about um, open banking. We speak about. Uh, data ownership. So we are we are more into the you know the craftsmanship of trying to find the appropriate remedies that would allow us to optimize the working of markets. So we are less in the I think in the radical realm of you know should we go full laissez-faire or full mm. big case and break up, and we are more into the we can we can optimize markets. It's sort of engineers, you know, it's a sort of public policy engineering mindsets. That I think is more is more the norm in Europe.
1: Yeah, uh, and uh, I mean, based on that, on first analysis, what do you make of the um, the new DOJ co- case against Google and the new European Commission case against Amazon? Did they reflect that different uh, culture?
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, I I I believe that. Um, this this uh, European case against Amazon. Let me start with that first. Um, is uh, it has it has two motivations, which you know, and I'm not talking here really as a lawyer, but more as a distant interested observer of what mm-hmm. I what I can witness. Um, I think it has two motivations. One is uh, to eliminate the idea that the Commission might have been biased against one particular big tech firm and uh, nurture support the idea that the the problems with big tech are the problem with big tech is horizontal meaning that it's Mm -hmm. it's there is a sort of common pattern of problems to facebook google amazon microsoft and you know maybe other other companies in this space so the we had cases against google uh there's been a case in germany about facebook now we're we're seeing this case against Amazon. This sort of lens supports to the idea that it's not a firm specific. It's not a firm specific issue. It's more. It's there. There is really a horizontal problem. And that brings me to my, you know, second. I m- the second motivation for these cases, which is that it's very helpful. I think for the Commission to bring these cases now because. Um, you know, heads it wins, uh, tail it wins, in the sense that the European Commission wants to adopt regulation. Um, if these cases work, it will be proved that there is something indeed horizontally wrong with big tech, meaning the regulation is is needed. If the Commission loses um, this this marginal case, that this next case, then the Commission will be able to say, the European Commission will be able to say. Look, you know, there is something wrong that we cannot fix with antitrust, and we need a bigger stick, and that is regulation. So, these I, these, are, I think, are the two drivers behind what we're seeing in Europe, and especially with this with this Amazon case. Now, going back to going to the U.S., um, I don't know how to really read this game, but I've been having the feeling. That, you know, in the context of the presidential election, there was really a need for the administration to, sh- to... There was a need for the administration to to show to some constituency that it was doing something against big tech, right? Mm-hmm. And there's that case, actually, the announcement of the case, which is really the case that is pushed by the Republican Attorney General um, um, in the United States. The, the announcement is, is, you know, weeks few weeks before the election i i i you know i cannot help i cannot help but think that it's not completely coincidental um but you know i'm maybe i'm just making this up but um but yeah, yeah. um i i i would i would be i would be not entirely surprised if uh, if there was this you know strong political push behind this case
1: yeah um Before we move on to a a core area of your book, I think we need a couple of explanations um, that that you do outline to people who are non-specialists in in competition economics and and competition law, including me. Um, Could you talk us through the concept of network effects and the concept of market tipping?
2: Sure. So uh, let's start with network effects. So um, the... Network effects is something that happens when the the pleasure, the utility, the benefits that I derive from using a product or a service increases with the number of other people who are using the service. Okay, so the the standard example is uh, the telephone system. Uh, if there's only one other person connected to the telephone network, it has very minimal value to, to me if, if I subscribe to it. But if there's a hundred of people connected to it, then it's, it starts to have a lot of utility to me because I can connect with more people. So this is really the idea of a network effect. And so network effect can be direct, we say, when, you know, in the case of the telephone, uh, of the telephone system, the network effect is direct because the more people like me connect to the network, the more value I derive from it. Okay. But it, mm-hmm. it can also be indirect. So, and here the idea that the value that I will uh, extract from a service, the utility, the pleasure, the enjoyment will depend on on the number of another of, of the number of users from another category that will be, um, that will be, uh, affiliated to the service. And so hmm. the typical example here is um, the video games, for instance. So I, I, I don't care how many other gamers are using uh, really, you know, a video game. What matters to me is the number of producers of game on the other side of the platform. Right. If I go to or if I go to Spotify, for instance, I don't care as, how many people are, li- are using Spotify as a service. There's no network, direct network effect here, but there's a network effect in the sense that the more musicians post and distribute their music through Spotify, the more enjoyment I derive from the service. Okay. And we call that an indirect network effect. So what's interesting and that leads me to, to the second um, concept that you, you wanted me to define, which is this idea of tipping. So what we, What we observe, you know, from experience, really, that in these markets where you have strong network effects, what happens is that at some point or the other, one firm wins all the markets. So, you know, there is... um, there is um, the benefits that you're deriving as a user increase with the number of of users on the same side or on the other side, and that creates that creates um, strong rewards to to one firm winning the market, um, and so you know you can see that with uh, word processing software, operating systems. You can see that with video cassettes in the past. I mean, if some people remember that the VHS, the VHS formats, uh, you know, dominated uh, all the rest because you know people started to to share video cassettes and uh, and uh, and this, was this sort of this sort of flow of big numbers uh, mm-hmm. and increasing returns led to one product, one application, one service dominating the market. So that's that's what you have when you have tipping. You have tipping when one product eventually concurs uh, the markets and then it's be you know in, in principle if a market is tipped it's it's pretty stable um, mm-hmm. and and it can be a problem because it comes close to to a monopoly position
1: right well I, I raise this because I think probably many people who would have got this far through the podcast would assume that that you are um, you're basically pushing back against this idea of of uh, monopoly in the sector. But in Chapter 4, you take us through the Magnaf companies individually, and you admit that the sector contains the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of monogopoly. Um And you say that the bad and the ugly deserve antitrust shock therapy to limit monopoly rents in tip markets and steer big tech firms towards competition in untip markets. Can you give us some practical thinking of what potential remedies could be used and and perhaps point us towards which companies are the bad and the ugly?
2: Okay. Um, I was fearing that question. (laughs) You can always dodge it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm a lawyer by education, so I I certainly can do that. Um, uh, But but don't nudge me too much. I'll try to give you some hints, though. Um, So the... uh, The the point really in the book is not to say that all these firms are, you know, great and and we should do nothing. So there's um, chapter six, actually, that uh, talks about Mm -hmm. uh, your privacy hate speech and, you know, say that something needs to be done, but it's probably not a a monopoly question. Um, And also, you know, within the monopoly set of tools that we have and the the competition policy thinking and equipment that we have, um, there is indeed something to do for, for firms in digital industries, that and you know, this is, I think, the dominant theme in my in my book. These firms that are lazy, inertial, and that do not, you know, that sit really on their on 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 top of uh, tipped markets and don't do much to to innovate, uh, recombine, and and enter indirectly into new markets. And so, and so, the, you know, firms that basically do not avail themselves of the modularity of the technology to Creates, invents, and produce new things, and so I say you can probably dif- differentiate between two types of firms. And what I say about Magnav could probably apply to other firms outside of Magnav. You know, th- firms like uh, Uber or Lyft or R- Airbnb. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can think about them more broadly. And so the point in the book is to say, you know, if we look if we look at a sufficient amount of performance data, we might get a sense of who's lazy, was was a, a not lazy big tech. Um, we might get a sense of which firm is sitting on top of a tipped position and which firm is sitting on top of a large position, but that's not tipped. So for instance, you know, one, one question that I cannot provide the answer to, but that keeps 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 me really busy thinking these days is when you think about the markets for app stores so you know apple is an app store and google yeah. has an app store called the play store and and um, the conventional way to to treat these markets in my field is to say google has a monopoly google android as a monopoly over the play store as a monopoly position, even though it's a semi-open source system, so you can have other play stores, and and Apple has a monopoly over the App Store, right? And so we think this way: so Google and Apple each have a monopoly in the application distribution market. Now, um, this is probably true if you take a pure market share view of these of these uh, industries. There's no question that you can find monopoly position there. I say, well, you know, we need to look, we need to look deeper, and we need to ask ourselves whether um, each firm is sitting on top of a, of a tipped app store. So, and and the answer might be different from, for Google and Apple. So people would say, you know, people would might come back to you with a very quick answer and say, sure. You know these two these two firms have tipped the markets for their app stores because they are the um, you know most dominant providers of app stores, and so we, but we're back again with this sort of market share view of the world, and I say in the book I say no this is not what sh- what the kind of investigation that we should that that we should uh, leads to understand whether our market has tipped. I say what we should try to look at is wh- is is whether this whether each firm keeps investing, keeps displaying efforts, keeps displaying anxiety by by channeling resources to the app store, which would denote exactly the contrary of monopoly, exactly the contrary of a tipped market. In a tipped market, the firm can basically sit. And so, you know, data that's um, antitrust agencies, investigators could try to use are, you know, things like, R and D expenditure in the app store employment expenditure and and also type of employment expenditure in the app store marketing expenditure and so on and so forth. And so once we get a good sense of how much investment goes into these products, we can get a sense of which is the tipped app store and which is not the tipped app store. And that should drive Mm -hmm. policy analysis and, and, and remedies.
1: Right. Um, all in i mean th- this book is is pretty heterodox in its thinking what's the reception been like within the competition law competition economics and actually in the policy making uh, community so far
2: it's- uh, i I you know my hunch is you know pe- my hunch is it's been very well received the um <laughs> but you know of course i'm I'm optimistic and it's my book, so I might have some bias here. but um I think the way I think the way the book is perceived is that um, it shows it shows a, a third way between um the pure the pure the pure knee jerk reg- monopoly regulation approach. And the pure, extremely ideological laissez-faire approach of others, and in a way, this this uh, this third approach is very post schumpeterian in mm. in terms of how it's it thinks about innovation, dynamism, uh, change. Uh, I I put a lot of effort in the book trying to explain that, you know, a sort of dominant feature that we see in these firms is their. Their flexibility, their adaptability, their and and we should, I think, policymaking should reward that and and should discourage or or penalize firms in digital markets which which actually fail to to pivot, which fail to turn around, which fail to to be you know mobile and which fail to actually exploit the full potential of the data economy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a final question. And since this is a podcast about books, I'd like a recommendation from you. Is there a book or even more than one book that you've read recently in economics and or competition that you would recommend to listeners?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, that, um,
1: apart from your own
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't read my books and every time I read them I, I think I, n- I need to write another one to forget about <laughs> the previous one so <laughs> so it's so certainly not that um, okay, so i I like I, I I went through okay so as far as an an economic book is is concerned, I think I would go to I would go to Schumpeter, um, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I would go to, uh, capitalism, uh, socialism and democracy. And, mm-hmm. uh, there's, um, you know, the, the chapter that Schumpeter really devotes to, to capitalism is, uh, is absolutely, is absolutely amazing. Um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, uh, you know, people should, should go to it and, and read it because, um, it's just uh, uh, mind-blowing. Uh, that's where it talks about the creative destruction and monopolistic yeah. practices. I think it's it's part two, can capitalism survive? And this in itself is a book. You don't need to read the entire, the entire book. This part two is just um, absolutely amazing. I'm also, so I'm currently reading something that I find quite good because it provides a completely different perspective on the way these firms operate. It's um, the Reed-Hastings, um book no rules rule so is this you know reed Hastings is the ceo of netflix and they have uh, so he wrote this book with with um business and management science uh, scholar erin meyer Mm -hmm. and he talks about how they how they basically manage the manage the company the company employees um, so, all the, all the human resources policy and all the human resources strategy that they have. And it's quite fascinating because, again, this is clearly something that we never discuss um, in competition. But when you read the book, you have to be, you, you, you sort of come out fascinated by mm-hmm. the amount of competition for talents that exists between these big tech firms. And so, the, sort of, the motivation behind the book is there are so much competition to retain good skills in the business. Hmm. we need to and so the book is about all the policy they have implemented to to retain these people to hire good people um, denoting a lot of conscience for managers for instance and and that is something that's completely out of uh, of what we're saying now if you want to ask me about a book i recently read um outside of economics yeah why not and uh, and and that i i really enjoyed so i i um reread something that i read i had read a long time ago this is the foundation um you know set of books from isaac asimov and Mm. um and i'll tell you why i like that and the relationship with my work so the, the foundation set of volumes of isaac asimov is about this foundation that fights across hyperspace to dominate the universe in a way right and um <laughs> it's so. It's about you know. There's this sort of this sort of civilization is decaying and um, yeah, it's 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 plagued by internecine wars and mm-hmm. um, you know one one person realizes that the world is gonna you know coming is gonna come to an end because. People keep fighting, and he creates this foundation, which is a sort of rep- it's a, sort of Wikipedia on a planet, which is the repository mm-hmm. of the repository of science. And if the world collapses, there will be this foundation, which will restart everything quite quickly. Okay, so this is the sort of dominant theme, that, and it starts like that. Mm-hmm. And um, and this this person, which was a bit like a prophet, um, he basically so this in this Wikipedia, it puts all the sort of hard science. So you know the manufacturers, the builders, the mechanicians, the physici- the, the physicians so all the hard science the the, the, the material science goes there okay mm-hmm. and so what's what's interesting in the book is that and this is a bit what we have in today in, in modern economics so we the world the field is dominated by by material scientists uh, mm-hmm. people who do physics they believe they are like you know they they, they believe that there are big laws that govern the economy, much as there are big laws that govern the universe, gravity, and and so on. And you you happen to realize in the book that the prophets understood that the world of the world was more complex, and that you also the world was also pretty much explainable and more complete if you if you appealed to soft science. And so he, cre- he created a hidden Sagan Foundation, composed of people working with psychology, mentalists. He called them, mm. right? And and so the entire set of volumes is a competition, is a competition between these two foundations for for the to keep the world in equilibrium. And it's a nice metaphor to what we have today in the economic policy world, where hard science dominates a soft understanding of the economy. every you know there's sort of domination in academia, but also in public policy for all the stuff you can measure. You need data, you need to measure everything. Mm-hmm. And all the softer aspect that Schumpeter was talking about for, instance, they are completely marginalized. And I think we you cannot build a theory of the world if you don't have all the voices that try to diagnose empirical phenomena on deck you need all them on deck and I think today in the world that we that we face in policy making and in academia all too often we are we are more we are more with the first foundation than with the second and we need both of them
1: well uh, very wide-ranging recommendations thank you very much Um, uh, today Nicolas Petit and I have been discussing his book Big Tech and the Digital Economy the Molagopoly Scenario published by Oxford University Press Nicolas thanks again for joining the podcast
2: Thank you very much, Tim. That was a pleasure.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.